right, I'm going to be reading three passages in Genesis. Genesis 1, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And Genesis 8:22 says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Well, we are uh, continuing in our series we've been in now for, I think this is week 11 or 12, and we, we only have a couple more. We are, we are nearing the end, this particular one, where we've been exploring the idea of there are countless, countless gifts to be found from God himself in just a myriad of expressions in our world, um, and often, often in ways that we don't even stop to think about, ways that we're often blind to. And what we've been trying to do is develop the eyes to see these beautiful, good things, not just as goods in and of themselves, though they are, but as things that we trace in C.S. Lewis's word, we trace the sunbeam up to the sun and find the gift giver behind these wonderful things. And today, we're talking about one that's kind of a contested and fraught one, which is the gifts of God to be found in science. In science. Um, you know, theism in general and Christianity in particular are often thought to be just in this irreparable conflict uh, with honest science. Um, you know, one of the most well-known stories from history and <laughs> from the history of science and religion is the case of the Italian physicist, astronomer, polymath, Galileo Galilei. If you've heard his story, you probably understand it as one where the Roman Catholic Church unjustly condemned him as a heretic and placed Galileo under house arrest, ultimately, for following the science, even when it departed from accepted religious doctrine. What was Galileo's crime? His crime was arguing for a version of Copernicus's heliocentric model of the relationship between the earth and the sun, namely that the earth orbits the sun and not the other way around. Um, Right there in that story is just kind of this condensed symbol of the basic incompatibility, a science that will boldly seek truth versus, you know, a faith that, uh, you, know, you know, we might say factually illegitimate religion that has a prefabricated answer to every question. Um, Thomas Jefferson, you know, one of our founding fathers here in the U.S., he once put it this way. I, I laughed out loud when I read this. Uh, he said, priests dread the advance of science as witches do the approach of daylight. <laughs> and I felt personally attacked by that. Thomas Jefferson. 
Um, yeah, I laughed out loud when I read, I read that in Glenn Scrivener's excellent chapter on faith and science in his book, The Air We Breathe, that we, we have there. We did, we did a big book club through that uh, a few months ago as a church. But, you know, as pithy as the statement is, you know, as a summary of the historical relationship between Christianity and science, I would argue it just totally mischaracterizes the relationship. You know, in, in true fact, it was two Franciscan friars or monks in Roger Bacon and William of Ockham who set the foundations for the modern scientific method. Um, and you know, if an absolute and insurmountable conflict between faith and science was supposed to be there, it didn't occur to some of science's greatest revolutionaries. This thing is a little wonky. Um, some of science's greatest revolutionaries, like Copernicus himself, who said, to know the mighty works of God, to comprehend the wonderful workings of his laws, surely, all this must be pleasing and acceptable, must be a pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the Most High. Or Galileo, who just mentioned, who said, the glory and greatness of Almighty God are marvelous, marvelously discerned in all his work. Or Kepler, who said, geometry is unique and eternal, a reflection of the mind of God. That men are able to participate in it is one of the reasons why man is an image of God. Or Isaac Newton, who said this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent, powerful being. And if you're in here and you're not a believer, you can reject these men's words uh, as, as quickly as you can reject anyone else's. You're not obligated to agree with them. But I trust the point remains. There is not, there has not been an irreconcilable difference between even the greatest scientific minds uh, the world has ever known. And faith in God. As Rebecca McLaughlin puts it, she said, historic Christianity prized the life of the mind. Medieval monasteries were centers of academic study. The first universities emerged to, uh, from a need to train priests. Oxford and Cambridge and later universities like Harvard and Yale were founded as explicitly Christian institutions. Did you know that? So if we go back to Galileo, to go back to the story of Galileo's genuine wrongful treatment at the hands of the church, we do well to remember a fuller context than the sort of pop culture version that usually makes its way to us. It turns out the story wasn't quite uh, as simple as it's made out to be. And what's really fascinating is it turns out that this conflict wasn't quite as simple as science versus faith. In fact, it was a dispute between two scientific theories with the church, in this case, backing the one that was held by the majority of scientists and with the greater available evidence in its favor at the time. Did you know that? Did you know that? As David Bentley Hart put it, it was the church that was demanding proof and Galileo who was demanding blind assent. Now, Galileo's story is fairly characterized as one of the church hindering scientific discovery, getting the facts wrong, and so on and so forth. It just is. Uh, but it also, it is also fairly characterized as a story demonstrating the humility with which we must speak of the science at any given point in history. Science was on the church's side in this particular case, until it wasn't, as is often the case. Here's the point. Here's my point. Christians often imagine that we have, or sometimes that we should have, an adversarial relationship with science, but it, it isn't necessary. We have a ton of cultural pressure to adopt this view, but I suggest that we reject it. It's not to say there is never tension, of course, between what seems to be the clear teaching of Scripture 
and what seems to be a settled scientific conclusion. Of course there are tensions there. You can probably think of 10 off the top of your head. But what I want to argue this morning is that the scientific method, the scientific community, the conclusions of our best science properly understood are another avenue by which we continue to receive countless gifts from our God. That's where we're going. See if we can make the case. First, let's pray. Ask God to help us. Lord, these are big things, uh, and though I am interested in this conversation, I am not a scientist, uh, nor the son of a scientist. Um, I'm certain I will mischaracterize things, Father, but I pray in your grace that you would keep me from, from doing it too badly. Uh, and Lord, that you would help truth ring here in this conversation, that we would just, at the end of it, have a more, uh, have a heart and an understanding towards the relationship between what we believe by virtue of what you've revealed in your scriptures and what we believe by virtue of careful uh, scientific study in the world, a relationship that reflects your heart, Lord. That's what we want. Help us. Help me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the first thing I want to talk about is the, the divine basis for science. Um, and I said this much earlier in the series, but I'm going to say this again. But, we're, you know, we're, this isn't a message about digging into Genesis 1. What should we think about uh, the creation account versus modern, you know, scientific cosmologies and all that kind of thing? It's not today, and it wasn't, we haven't really done that in this series. But setting that aside, I want to argue for a basic posture that Christians should hold as we enter into, specific, especially Genesis, what it says about these things. But I think it applies to the whole of Scripture. Um, if we want to be faithful to the historic Christian faith and to the scriptures, uh, I think we need to be able to say a couple of things. First, whatever the authors of Genesis 1 intended to communicate, we receive with humility. We receive with trust as the authoritative, truthful, infallible, spirit-inspired word of God. I, don't, I know to, to non-Christians, you're like, well, that sounds dumb. Uh, to Christians, that should be non-controversial. God, if he has spoken, we, we listen to him. We're beholden to what he has spoken, properly understood. Second, that the authors of Genesis 1 are claiming that the biblical God created the cosmos and specifically sculpted and ordered it all for his purpose. That is the meta, arch, overarching narrative of the first uh, chapters of the Bible. God created it. It did not. Any, anything that would claim to, any view that would claim to exclude God from the process ought to be rejected outright. That is the very heart of Genesis 1 and 2. Third, that the authors of Genesis 1 are writing in a way that was intelligible to the ancient Near Eastern audience they were writing to. The, the authors, the human authors, used categories and images familiar to them and were answering the questions that they would have been asking. So the flip side of this is that they weren't interested in the kinds of categories and questions that people from our culture with our understanding of the cosmos are just constantly swimming in. Genesis 1 emphasizes the function, the purpose, the meaning of the created world rather than the detailed material process. Um, I suppose that's a controversial statement that some might, might disagree with, but if, if that's you or if any of this is like, man, I, I want to dig more into that. I, love these conversations. Let's grab coffee or whatever, and let's do it. Um, but those are, I think those things capture the basic heart I would hope we could all take towards Genesis uh, in this conversation. Another thing to say, we're talking about science. 
And we have to acknowledge from the get-go that it is certainly the case that the human biblical authors had absolutely no conception of anything like modern science. Modern science is very young, actually, in history of the world. Um, we aren't going to find any one-to-one chapter and verse discussions of science per se. But, note this as well, it is historically the case that features of the biblical worldview and Christian theology namely the basic relationship between God, the world, and humanity, has laid a theological and philosophical foundation for what became modern science. So, I want to share three important pieces and ideas from the biblical worldview. That's the heart of this message, that, that, that lay that foundation, that orient us into how we should think about these things. The first idea is this. first idea is this, is that God, the Creator, is both free and rational. And that's looking back at Genesis, the first verses of Genesis, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called, excuse me, the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. So what do I mean by God is free and rational from this? Well, first, God is free. God is free. Well, the, the picture of the Scripture constantly declares that there's no force constraining God apart from his own character. So when God chooses to create, he doesn't create out of some sense of obligation or that it must, the creation must look this way or that way. He was utterly free and unconstrained to make the world however he saw fit. Turns out, this is the world and this is the universe that he did make. The, the Christian Scriptures declare an implication of that as it relates to science is that we can't assume what the universe must be like blindly. We have to go and see for ourselves. And this is like a, a radically different uh, perspective than, say, Aristotle and the Greek philosophers took, which was basically that their logic. You know, I, I read an example one time was that you know, an Aristotelian view of these things would be like, what's the orbit of the planets like? Well, it must be a circle because a circle is the perfect shape. And the things higher up out from the earth are more perfect than the things down here. That's the sort of logic that pervaded science, scientific inquiry for the Greek philosophers up to a point. The biblical story is very different. God isn't constrained by any of these particular ideas. He's free to create. So therefore, if we want to know what the world is actually like, we can't make assumptions. We actually have to go out and see for ourselves, which is a small revolution for human thinking. Isn't that fascinating? Um, God's free. Number two, God is rational, related to that. And this is the flip side of that. So he's a God, we see right from these first verses of Genesis, he's a God of order and rationality. Uh, He's hovering over the, the chaotic waters and he begins to bring form and order and place and proper relationship between all the things. The whole account of Genesis 1 emphasizes his ordering of, of this chaos that's there, that started with creation. So he, he's God of order and rationality. And if he is, if he has made the world to function in an orderly way, which is certainly one of the main themes of the Genesis account, then we can assume the universe has a logic to it and thus a discoverability about it. What that means, both of these things together, means it is meaningful and necessary to pursue science because God has made an orderly world. 
that if we look out into the world, we will find an order that will be intelligible to us. Well, that relates to idea number two. Idea number two, that humans are equipped and commissioned for the task of science. You can see that in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, both male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. How many times have we talked about these verses over the last 12 weeks? And there's always more there. What I wanna to emphasize today is first that humans are equipped for the task of science. We can trust that our minds are fit for the task of meaningfully interacting with the created world because God is the creator of both the world and us. He's made us in his image and he's given us a task to subdue, to cultivate, to care for, to take the world somewhere. And if he's given us that task, he must have given us the capacity to do it. We are equipped to understand and to work with the world so that we can cultivate it. And that's actually not a given, uh, given modern sort of, uh, a lot of modern philosophy is poking at this idea. Like very quickly, if you, if you read, uh, in this case, Christian uh, analytic philosopher Alvin Plantiga, he argues, if naturalism and evolution, evolution are true, both of those together, then you can't actually be confident that hu the human mind evolved in a way that's actually oriented towards truth perception. Because the main function is survival. So it could, the human mind could have or ordered itself in ways that are you know, geared towards survival as an individual or as a species, but that has nothing to do with truth. Anyway, that's a we're not gonna get into that. I don't even know if I should say that. <laughs> Bible does, the, the biblical worldview doesn't have that problem. We are equipped to interact with the world God has given us, and we are also commissioned in it. I think the idea behind go and subdue the earth, cultivate the earth, all these things we see, keep it, tend it, work it, the idea is that we, need to, we would have to understand it to do that more and more properly, correct? So I think baked into this commissioning here in Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is the idea that our progressive understanding of God's good world is assumed, and it's a good thing. God wants us to engage the work of understanding so that we can better steward this world. So we are both equipped and commissioned for the task of science, I would argue. This is the foundation for that idea, at least. Here's a third idea. Third idea is that what we see in Genesis 8.22, I'll read it. I'll go ahead and read it. This is after the flood. This is part of the so-called Noahic covenant, the covenant God makes with Noah when he's promising he's not going to do this thing again, this destruction thing. It says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And I think we, ha we have good reason from this verse and others like it to argue that the world, the third idea here is that the world is graciously uniform and predictable. So one of the great problems in philosophy in general, but the philosophy of science in particular, goes back to the rationalist philosopher David Hume. I don't know if you've heard this before, but he pointed out that there is a problem 
with the idea of induction or inferring ideas about things that, you've seen, that you haven't seen from things that you have seen. So as an empiricist, philosopher, he was trying to ground his philosophical project in, in, in only what could be observed through the senses, okay? We're not going to take dogma. We're not going to take, you know, things, ideas from theology. We're not going to take even rationalist ideas, ideas that seem necessary that we haven't observed with our senses. All we can trust is our sense, sense experience, and we have to build up from that. Okay. But what he realized is that... Um, if I'm going to live this out consistently, if any of us are, if you commit to starting with your senses as your grounding for all understanding, you actually are left with the shocking conclusion that there is not a sound logical argument for ever assuming or generalizing about anything you observe into the past or the future. Sorry, I know that this is dense. Science is built on the idea that we are observing things right now. Let's say a law. Say we've made enough observation that we come up with a scientific law. We say we believe this is a consistent law that has applied for all time in our universe. The problem with that is, if Hume is right and all we can trust is sense experience, we've only been observing these things for a limited amount of time. Who is to say that these laws weren't totally different 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago? We might say, well, the universe would be in disarray. Maybe it would be, maybe it wouldn't be. See, there you're starting, to you're starting to infer things from what you see that you can't prove with your empirical senses. And the really fascinating thing is that philosophers have been trying now for hundreds of years, since 1739, to debunk Hume, and no one's been able to do it. If sense experience is the foundation for knowledge, then there is no, never a legitimate way to draw from what we see to what we can't see. And science is actually impossible on that worldview. If Hume is right, if Hume is right. So, it may be wholly unsatisfying to you if you're not a person of faith. It might be wholly unsatisfying if you are a person of faith for, for various reasons. But the decrees of God solve this problem. If there is an omniscient God who knows all, who created, who intimately understands the functioning and the working of the universe, and he declares to us, like in Genesis 8, that while the earth remains, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, the... the all these basic functions of this universe are orderly and dependable, then suddenly we can say, the things I observe probably fit a pattern to things that I can't observe. We can begin to have good reason to make logical inferences from our observation, and that's really important. Basically, the biblical worldview has in fact historically undergirded the development of Western of modern science. And the history of Western philosophy has largely represented, since Rene Descartes and his, uh, his rationalist project, has represented a retreat from any confidence in the pursuit of capital T truth. Science has continued on. Of course, we continue to make scientific discoveries, good ones, true ones, uh, but without a philosophical footing. And the reason that science can continue to make these discoveries is because we live in the type of world described by the scriptures and not the type of world described by David Hume and the philosophers. Praise God. Praise God for this. I think those three ideas, of course they're not talking per se about modern science, but they, they lay the track that makes this task intelligible to begin with. I want to just talk about the goods of science. The goods of science. Because, okay, great. 
you know, the world, biblical worldview gives us reason to pursue science, confidence that we can do it and make advances. But there are real tangible gifts here. The first is just the idea that science, I mean, at a basic level, it is looking and seeing and coming to a greater understanding of this world that God has made, the people he's put in it. Um, the universe out there that extends beyond this earth, of course. One of the great gifts of science is that it enables us to fully, or not fully, but to more and more appreciate the wonder of God. I mean, the fact that we have these incredible telescopic images, we're seeing things about the universe that no other human in, in history had ever seen before the last decades. And these advances are happening so quickly, but at, with every one of these advances, we're able to see just a little bit more, a little bit further, a little bit more completely just what kind of space has God made? Just what kind of universe are we in? Just how complex is a living organism? Just how intricate does the ecosystem of all the living things work. Just how amazing are the laws that govern physics, and so on and so forth. With each of these discoveries, we, we there have an avenue, if we'll take it, of recognizing the incredible majesty, the creative power, the beauty, the rationality of the God of the scriptures. Psalm 19.1, you've heard this before, I assume. Beautiful verse, beautiful psalm. But the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And now here in 2023, we can see that depth, the depth of that statement, even more fully, if we'll take it. So through the gifts of science, we get to understand the world God has made and God himself and all of his creative power more than we would otherwise. But it's more than that. The gifts of science also extend to the as we already have kind of hinted at, to the development of that first task God gave us to subdue and to tend and to keep and to work this world. Science is invaluable for extending our ability to care, to lovingly nurture for creation, the world around us, and for people. And for people, the, image bear the fellow image bearers of which every person is. Think of advances in medicine that are driven by scientific discovery. I mean, just think about the life change, the world changing advent of something like being able to harness something like penicillin. That's recent. Being able to treat infections with something like penicillin is brand new in human history. And it's because of scientific discovery we've been able to actually nurture and care for the image bearers of God's lives to, to, to allow them to, to live longer lives, to live more uh, fulfilled lives. Science can drive good and healthy and right policies. Science can drive technologies that, that you know, help human flourishing. And I know what you're thinking. Well, all of these, all these things probably has a, a dark underbelly, uh, and we'll get there too. But let's just pause here for a moment and think of all the incredible, amazing gifts, medicine, technology that science affords us. This is quite literally just the... the, the the latter steps of that very first task God gave to humans. Subdue the earth, tend it, keep it, work it. Take something that is very good and make it even better. Figure out how to steward it towards even more beauty and human flourishing and so on and so forth. Science, rightly utilized, becomes a channel through which we can obey the second part of the great commandment and the first 
Love God with your love God with everything you have, including your mind, including your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Science can play a role in both of those things. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. And we just have to say, as with all of these things, through God's common grace, the fact that God, in His wisdom, He does not, uh, though. The scriptures declare all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He does not strike us down. He does not take away all of our capacities. He does not take away our aptitudes and our gifts. Good science can be done and obviously has been done through countless, countless, countless non-Christians who do not understand their task as glorifying God, uh, cultivating the world in a Genesis 1 and 2 sense at all. Nonetheless, God in his grace has given them the tools to do it and they have played wonderful roles in making the world a better place for their research. We can praise God for them too. Even, even if they won't, we can. So science is full of gifts. We could say so much more about that, but these sermons have been a little long. We've tried to rein them in a little bit. Of course, I've already mentioned it, and it happens every time in these, in these uh, sermons, Okay, that's all fine and good, but we live in a Genesis 3 world, don't we? The fall has happened. Sin has happened. Uh, And as a result, all of these endeavors we talk about, including science, are marred. They're impacted by sin. So so third, I want to talk about sin and the limits of science. And this will be brief, of course, as well. But I think it goes without saying, scientific ideas, first of all, can be incorrect or mistaken. You know, at one point in human history, uh, it was a significant, not so long ago, it was a significant point of tension for Christians who believed in the biblical account of the origins of the universe, that God created the universe from nothing. Ultimately, that the universe had a beginning. That was a significant point of tension for Christians who were like, man, Bible really seems to, seems to argue that the universe had a beginning, but all of our science is saying that that is an absurd idea. Until about the 20th century, when it was discovered that the universe is expanding and inferences from there concluded there must have been a beginning. Now, it's, of course, the, the, the mainstream, the, wide, the widely accepted view that the universe had a beginning. It's not eternally generating matter. And now Christians can breathe a little bit easier. <sighs> okay, like, now that's not really attention for us anymore. There are other ones, there are other ones. But my point is this, not to be utterly skeptical of science, but just to, to note, science is always refining itself if it's being done well, and things that are taken as absolute bedrock truth get revolutionized the next day. One of the most, I don't have time to get into this, one of the most fascinating books I've ever read is this book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, uh, a philosopher of science. Basically argues that, and I know this, this might not sound intuitive, but it's a fascinating book. I think he makes a really compelling case. Science has not so much functioned as the gradually building up of a higher and higher, you know, tower or whatever, but it's more so functioned by what he calls dramatic revolutions that have essentially thrown the tower off the table and started with a new foundation. Each major scientific revolution we've had has basically made uh, a a new world in which we begin to even try to understand what type of experiment should we even be looking for. It's fascinating. And we will have more. Foolish of us if we sit like people in, say, the 1800s and thought, I think we've got this universe figured out. We have arrived as a species. The mysteries have been completely, you know, overturned. We've got it all. I just, I don't think so. 
Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but I do not think so. Things that we consider bedrock truth today, probably before the time that uh, any of us are dead, will go, I cannot believe they taught me that in school. We used to have nine planets in our solar system. (laughs) That's a silly one. But you take my point. Science can be, scientific ideas can be incorrect or mistaken. Of course, I I don't know anyone that would argue with that. A second thing is we have to acknowledge is that theological ideas, this was kind of going back to that, what we read at the very beginning. Um, Theological ideas can be incorrect or mistaken and thus hinder science. I think it's a good thing that we don't have kind of uh, religion controlling scientific enterprise in the Western world, at least, (laughs) I guess that could be debated. We'll get get to that in a second. Um, But... It is certainly the case that our ideas about what Scripture is communicating can be mistaken. That we go, I think this is clear as day, the Scripture is saying this, and a little bit more study, a little bit more ancient context, a little bit more prayer, a little bit more reflection, you go, man, I actually have had that wrong. How many times have all of us thought we knew something dead certain about God? It doesn't mean God has changed. It means that we have grown and we've learned in our ability to understand what he's communicating. I love this quote because G.K. Chesterton is so salty, and it's so fun when he's salty, and I'm just going to read this. This is how Chesterton's writing about the theologian Thomas Aquinas, and, but he's talking about the conflict between faith and science and how, how Aquinas really, really helped in this regard. So here's what he says, Chesterton. For instance, in the matter of the inspiration of Scripture, he, that's Aquinas, fixed first on the obvious fact, which was forgotten by four furious centuries of sectarian battle, that the meaning of Scripture is very far from self-evident and that we must often interpret it in light of other truths. If a literal interpretation is really, uh, is really and flatly contradicted by an obvious fact, why then can we only say that the literal interpretation must be a false? Why then we can only say literal interpretation must be a false interpretation? But the fact must really be an obvious fact, and unfortunately, 19th century scientists were just as ready to jump to the conclusion that any guess about nature was an obvious fact as were 17th century sectarians to jump to the conclusion that any guess about scripture was the obvious explanation. Thus, private theories about what the Bible ought to mean have met in loud and widely advertised controversy, especially in the Victorian time. And this clumsy collision of two impatient forms of ignorance was known as the quarrel of science and religion. (laughs) He's on to something there. God and his revelation, I want to be very clear about this. I hope you believe this. God and his revelation are our ultimate authority. I'm more convinced than ever that if you don't start with the revelation of God, you will end up in philosophical incoherence. To whom else can we go but to our Lord? God and his revelation are our ultimate authority, but we must work as hard as we can at both our Bible interpretation slash theologizing and we must work as hard as, our can, as we can in our scientific pursuits, all while op- operating with a gigantic dose of humility about the limits of what we know. I've personally found this to be a position where I can just have a peaceful confidence in my God. I, I really, I really this has taken time for me, and there may be some new crisis of, of doubt or whatever that gets stirs up a year from now or whatever, but I can say right now just this trust that God knows. His word is sufficient. I don't have it exhaustively properly understood, but he does. I have my problems in my interpretation. 
Science is great and beautiful. It's made unmistakable, unavoidable advances, and that's a good thing, and it can be wrong too. That just, let, that just lets me kind of sit and simmer when those tensions come and go, yeah, let's, let's, it, to the extent I'm interested, I'm gonna dive in, I'm gonna read about it, I'm gonna learn about it, and that's a, that's a decently comfortable position to be in. Um, maybe it can be for you too. Have peaceful confidence in my God and joyful curiosity as humans continue to make discoveries. I think that should be our posture. Okay. Scientific ideas can be mistaken. Theological ideas can be mistaken. Third, scientific discoveries can be turned unethical, unjust, or evil. Um, I'm really fascinated to see that movie about J. Robert Oppenheimer that's coming out. Uh, if you didn't know, Christopher Nolan is, comes out in late July, I think but about Oppenheimer, and apparently he's saying like people are, it's a biopic about the guy who invented the atomic bomb, uh, and, and, and this could just be buzzed to get people in the theater, but they're saying people are, are coming out of this movie as though they saw like the most disturbing horror film they've ever seen, just like shaken to the core. Because this movie that's going to wrestle with what does it mean that humans have just created for political purposes something that could eradicate all life on Earth. We now live on the other side of that. It can't be undone. This is what humans have done. And so I'm fascinated to see that. But it, my point being, without a moral, ethical, uh, supernatural value to guide what science can and should be turning its attention toward, we end up with things like nuclear bombs. We end up with things like eugenics. We end up with things uh, that are just plainly horrific if you have the eyes to see them, things that we become all too sort of calloused and uh, comfortable with. The science does a pretty good job, not infallible, but a pretty good job with the physical and the material, but I think it goes without saying, definitionally, science cannot account for anything supernatural or transcendent, from miracles, obviously, but also to things, transcendent things like meaning, values, ethics, Science detached from moral constraint will go awry. And I shudder, sometimes I kept up at night thinking about what kinds of horrific experiments like on people and stuff are happening in like underground labs we don't even know about, Le legitimately. Science needs moral constraint for it to be good. A product of the fall is that science has been used to horrific evil, obviously evil ends. And that's not okay, it's scary. Maybe a fourth thing I would say is this. Scientific methodologies can be turned ideological in our sin-fallen world. Now, the scientific method, I heard one say, was devised to ensure against the temptation to sin. Double-blind experiments and uh, you know, peer review and all these kinds of things that are these safeguards around. Now, did the study really prove or at least gesture at what you're saying? That's good. We, that's why we need these things, because the average researcher is a <laughs> sinful, fallen person just like the rest of us. They're going to be tempted to obscure and to twist and to fabricate data that gets their point across, whatever they're viewing is like their ultimate objective. And science, scientific methodologies, we just have to acknowledge in this sin-fallen world, can absolutely be turned ideological. And when this happens, when agendas are placed over data, Science ceases to be science when this happens. And as, as I said earlier, it's a good thing that religion, in my view, that religion isn't controlling science. But I do think we have to ask if there aren't certain quasi-religious movements controlling scientific research right now. We just always need to be hesitant 
before we just plainly assume that it's all being done in good faith and that it's trustworthy. For a point of imagination, I think I've said this before, but if, so we're talking about science in the fall, and we could say more about that, but we'll stop there. But imagine science without the fall. I love this, I love this thought experiment. Like, what if there was no fall? What if Adam and Eve never sinned? What if all of this stuff, our, our mental sort of problems that have come, our, our intellectual problems that have come as a result of the fall, our, our motivational problems, our uh, ideological problems, all these things, our directional problems, our sort of moral vision for how we could and should use science, and so forth. What if that didn't happen? I believe we would still be doing science. I believe we would still be pursuing understanding of this world that God has made. And what's really exciting to me, I can't prove it, I just am wondering if in the new creation, Jesus comes, puts all things right, he institutes a new heavens and a new earth where every tear will be wiped away, sin will be no more, we are rebooting the human project in its full goodness. It's no longer just the garden, but it's this gigantic city within the garden. And the, you know, the kings and the people of various nations are coming and bringing their goods in and out of the city. To me, all of this points to the idea that we will continue to do science in the new creation. Maybe not me, maybe not you, maybe some of you. Maybe some of you have had that dream deferred, and you're like, I wanted to be a scientist. No, I can't do that for whatever reason, but maybe one day, maybe one day you will. And I just, I just, the image I always have is of God, like, coming alongside his people again and saying, see that star out there? I want you to go see that. And you don't have to worry about death. You don't have to worry about faulty reasoning. I just, this is, this one's for you. When we begin to think about like the vast cosmos, the, it, just, just unfathom, I mean, we, we, we literally cannot fathom the scope of the universe that exists. We can either say, well, obviously God, a God who cares about people on the planet Earth doesn't, it, that doesn't make any sense. Or you flip it around and say, no, he cares about us so much that he's given us this almost eternal playground for our minds to go and to explore, to see the creation that he has out there that we can't even fathom right now. I get excited thinking about that. I don't know if I'll be that person, because I, I don't know. I kind of hate airplanes, so it sounds horrible. Maybe Jesus can just like zap us there or something. I don't know. I don't know. We're getting wildly speculative here. But my hunch, my hunch is that scientific discovery and the life of the mind will continue to be part of the task of humanity into eternity future, and that there will be plenty for us to enjoy and explore to the glory of God. How's that sound? Yeah, very cool. So science is a gift, I think, I believe. And I just want to conclude with, with this, with a, with a basic posture. Maybe we've already said these things. We want to embrace that gift. I really do think we have to start, for no, numerous reasons, with just our posture should be to trust God to trust God as the creator and as our ultimate authority. And this might seem counter science, but I, I am convinced it's our only hope for a philosophically consistent science, certainly a meaningful one. I suggest that we humbly grow in our biblical interpretation because these tensions are gonna arise and we don't, we're not gonna reflexively say, whatever science has discovered means I have to throw out this verse or whatever. In fact, we will never throw out a verse if we're, if we're trying to honor God. But you, I take it you, you take my meaning there. 
but we also recognize we can be wrong. We could be reading things through our narrow cultural lens in a way that is utterly foreign to the intentions of God the Spirit who inspired his word. We're going to humbly seek to grow in our scientific interpretation, recognizing that there's flawed methodologies there just as there is everywhere. There is no absolute uh, perfect scientific authority. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't respect it. We shouldn't pursue it. We just continue to do it humbly as we try to grow. And then I note this. This is, <laughs> I don't know, this is a weird, it seems like a weird and strange point in my notes, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I could just end there, but I'm, no, I'm going to say this one too. I think we just recognize that Jesus himself is the Lord of science. And why do I say that? That sounds kind of weird. Well, one of my favorite passages in the scripture comes in Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 20, which is this picture Paul paints of what some theologians call just the cosmic Christ. And I trust that you understand, like, what we believe, what Christians throughout history have believed about Jesus is that, yes, he was a, a fully human, humble carpenter, Jewish teacher, uh, lived a modest life, um, so on and so forth. But he was also the incarnate Son of God. He was eternal. God the Son did not come into existence at his conception in this world. He is eternally existent with the Father and with the Son. And the implications of that are wild and crazy. And Paul, here's what Paul says about it in Colossians 1. He says, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, listen to this, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is a wild claim, and maybe you have trouble believing it. I don't know. But he's, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the image of this invisible God, this God who is there before anything was created. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was the, per was the person of the Godhead that God created everything through. Everything was created through him and for him. And listen to this. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, you see, as an infant, we see as a man bloodied and broken for the sins of the world on the cross. Today, he was before, he is, still remains today the one who is holding together the universe. He is sustaining it by his loving compassion. He continues to make it rational and reasonable and relatively predictable so that we can flourish and do things like science and discovery and art and all the things we've been talking about. It's not an accident of history that the world is the way that it is. But today, the same Jesus who died for your sins to redeem you, that you might never have to be apart from him, he holds it all together by his loving power. So to do science, you could then argue, is to 
further understand the loving provision of that same Jesus who died for us. Isn't that crazy? So let's try our best not to bifurcate these things into these separate realms and, you know, disconnected or utterly at conflict with one another, but may it all point to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one through whom and for whom everything was created. And not just in some abstract sense, and not just, you know, as a data point, but ultimately all of this and the cross, so that as this says, he might reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of the cross. The same God who holds it all together, who designed it, who created the vast cosmos, he came to die for you, to make peace with you by his own blood. Isn't that insane? Sounds too good to be true. Some of us have come to believe that it is true. Praise God for it. Let's pray.